Hello, my name is Benjamin Noel, PhD, and I am the Director of Patient-Centered Research at Creaky Joints, a digital patient organization for people with all forms of arthritis. I'm also the principal investigator of our Arthritis Power Research Registry, which was created by Creaky Joints in partnership with the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, today, I'm here with Dr. Swami Venturapalli, uh, MD, FACR. He's the founder of Attune Health and an attending rheumatologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He's also an associate clinical professor of medicine at UCLA. Uh, we offer our thanks to Rheumatology Consultant for hosting our expert conversation today. As background, the American College of Rheumatology's Rheumatology Research Foundation recently awarded, only for the second time, the Norman B. Galis MD Research Award for Rheumatologists in Community Practice. It's also called the Galis Award for short. Uh, and this, this year it was awarded to SWAMI to support telehealth-delivered healthcare. The Galis Award provides funding for rheumatologists in community-based practice who, in addition to taking care of patients, want to test their own observations through research. Launching in January, Dr. Venturapalli will be the lead in a two-year study called the Telehealth Delivered Healthcare to Improve Care, or THRIVE study. Creaky Joints will be contributing to this study as it progresses. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Swami Venturapalli to this conversation as well. And to start, uh, Swami, some questions for you. First of all, how have you integrated telehealth into your own private practice? And why do you think it's important for us to study the delivery of rheumatology telehealth at this time? Ben, thank you so much for that introduction. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to have this lovely conversation with you. So, you know, as soon as the coronavirus hit and our patients started getting worried about coming to our offices and we started thinking about how to protect them the best, telehealth emerged as a important and viable alternative. The statistics on this are quite staggering. The uptake in telehealth in the first few months of the pandemic in March, April, and May of 2020 saw more than 80% or so of most community rheumatology practices going to a fully virtual platform. But when we started doing this, we really didn't have anything to base our decisions on how we conduct telehealth, which patients are particularly suited for telehealth, which patients are absolutely not suited for telehealth, and what should a telehealth encounter look like, uh, which platform is better than others, you know, what about HIPAA compliance, et cetera. The rules were really changing by the minute, if not by the day. And we really had to become inventive and we had to look for resources that answered all of these questions. The ACR put together a position statement that was really helpful. There were other societies that also did similar things. And we started looking at the literature. And I actually personally reached out to a friend of mine who had been a researcher in the telehealth field, Neil Suarez, who helped me think through all of these aspects of how to conduct an optimum telehealth encounter from the home-based office setting or your office setting in your private office. And so we started uh, integrating very quickly. Initially, it was pretty much everybody who wanted to be seen was told that we are limiting the number of patient visits in the office. And we started breaking our own group of doctors into separate 
teams so that we reduce the overall traffic of humans in our office itself. So we started integrating telehealth right off the bat. And some of our patients preferred FaceTime. We knew that was not HIPAA compliant, but luckily we were able to ignore that because of directives from the government that said that it was okay to spend strict HIPAA compliant software solutions, et cetera, for the time being. So we used a combination of things like Zoom, FaceTime, uh, Doximity, which had a very nice app. Some of my patients were on Android phones and there was a software there called Duo. So we figured out that we need to be available to our patients. They were freaking out a lot about the coronavirus pandemic. They needed answers. They were all told initially that autoimmune disease is the highest risk category for coronavirus complications. So we really have to take this extremely seriously. So we were able to use a mishmash of different softwares, different approaches. And I think with all of the societal support and all of our collective discussions amongst our own groups, we kind of figured it out. And I think my office, like every other office, had to really think on the fly and come up with some solutions. And then within a month or two, we got adapted doing this and more facile. And we started figuring out that this is the best way to do it for us. And as we kept doing it, we got better at it. And we figured out that a patient with a hot, swollen knee joint, for example, was probably not the best patient to be offered a telemedicine appointment. That patient really needed to be seen in the clinic. And on the other hand, a patient who had some labs drawn a week prior and needed discussion about the laboratory work may be a very appropriate patient to be seen through a telemedicine appointment. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that was kind of how we did it in our practice. Yeah, no, that's, uh, thank you. That's really interesting. It, I mean, it sounds like, as you mentioned, it just, it, it came up all of a sudden and it sounds like you responded pretty rapidly in your clinic to figure out how to minimize people being in contact with each other and then adapted and, you know, figured out some platforms to use like Zoom, Doximity, FaceTime, Duo, and so forth. And I guess that leads yeah. me to my next question. First of all, congratulations on the Galas Award. That is very exciting and, and a prestigious award. Thank you. Fantastic to get that. So, and, and it's, it couldn't come at a better time. So I know the Thrive study that you're leading is going to evaluate the quality of telehealth services when it's provided to a rheumatology patient in their home and, and also provide some recommendations for physicians about best practices for telehealth care yeah. and rheumatology. And you, and you mentioned some of your casual observations, like you know, even just thinking through the fact that some patients are more appropriate than others for telehealth, but some you just really have to see in person. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the bigger question then is given the different platforms and the options, why do you think it's important to have some kind of standardized telehealth care, especially in rheumatology? Yeah. So, you know, one of my senior partners at the beginning of the pandemic was extremely worried about, you know, how uh, they might be able to handle the whole technological transition. And even financially, we were all wondering how things would work out. And besides technology, you know, a lot of patients really take to this platform. And we kind of grounded ourselves by thinking that, hey, we're rheumatologists, we're problem solvers, and that's what we do for a living. This is another problem, and we're going to figure it out, and we're going to solve it. And that's kind of 
helped us ground ourselves a little bit and come up with some of these solutions. But if you think about rheumatology, we have all these different diseases which are chronic in nature, autoimmune in nature. And historically, our field has been able to make sense of these diseases which are really hard to diagnose, to confirm a diagnosis. It takes a long time and longitudinal follow-up of a patient to see different kinds of symptoms that start with one thing and then progress to another thing. And, you know, we've learned from those experiences that the only way to move the field forward is a systematic approach. So by systematic approach, I mean breaking down the main components of the disease, measuring labs, measuring clinical signs, measuring symptoms, coming up with composite outcome measures, and then keep measuring them over time and keep improving them over time. So I think as rheumatologists, we have learned from taking care of extremely complex patients with chronic diseases that a systematic approach is extremely important to move our field forward. And I think that was the basis of the way that we wrote our grant, which was, can we think about doing telehealth in a systematic manner to benefit our patients? One thing that stuck with me was that patients who come to see me in my practice sometimes drive for two or three hours, and I live in Southern California, and sometimes traffic makes a two-hour drive into a four-hour drive. And even though the pandemic kind of forced us into the whole telehealth game, we felt, and uh, across conversations with other rheumatologists, we felt that, you know, this might be actually an important tool for us to use in appropriate situations. But we don't really have any literature to guide us on what the best telehealth mechanism, platform, or way to collect all of the important data that we need to make important decisions. How do we do all of that in this new world? And approaching it in a systematic manner was the basis of this grant that we wrote, including a lot of academic partners like Jeff Curtis at the University of Alabama, yourself, Ben, from the Global Healthy Living Foundation, and your team, which is extremely talented, and Neil Suarez, my friend, who's a telehealth researcher. So putting together this multidisciplinary team to solve this very, very important problem was kind of the basis of how we thought through this grant. And we felt that it's really important because telehealth might actually be here to stay beyond the pandemic. And we as rheumatologists feel that the way to solve these complex problems really is a systematic approach. And this is what this grant tries to address. One important thing is that most of the literature that we looked at in telehealth was really based out of a office-based telehealth program or a center-based telehealth program. So these are places which have high definition internet connections and the patient might be also in a similar center with high definition telephonic or video connections, etc. But in this new situation, we were using all kinds of different platforms that were commercially available from the patient's home with variable technology capabilities. And that's never been studied before. So we felt it was really important to study and come up with some sort of recommendations to our peers in rheumatology on how to conduct telehealth when our patients are in their home. 
That's great. It's a sort of necessity is the mother of invention, I suppose, but it sounds like <laughs> yeah. it sounds like we the necessity now is to get some standardization in place to help guide people now that we have more time Absolutely. to reflect on it. Yeah, well said. So, Ben, let me ask you a question because you and your research sure. collaborators at the Autoimmune Research Collaborative conducted a telehealth survey with rheumatic disease patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. And you know, what were your main findings? Can you share it in this platform? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, so we presented uh, results at this year's American College of Rheumatology meeting at uh, Convergence this year from analysis we did of more than 20,000 patients seen by rheumatologists who are part of the American Arthritis and Rheumatology Associates, uh, or AARA network, and that's a national mm -hmm. rheumatology practice group. And what we found overall was that during the first half of 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic was spreading, so roughly from between January and May, uh, we found that people with rheumatic diseases frequently, as you would expect, avoided in-person office visits and, and also avoided laboratory testing. And even in some cases, they discontinued their immunomodulatory treatments without the advice of their rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. You know, at least 10 or more percent of people, it sounded like we're doing that. Yeah. Um, yes. So, you know, that's, that's concerning, of course. But one, yeah. one of the things that we found is that even as the telehealth visits did increase during that period and office visits declined, the frequency of missed or canceled in-person appointments also increased. So in short, even though there wasn't definitely an uptick in the use of telehealth, it just didn't, it didn't quite catch up to the number of cancellations that were happening. I see. That, yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. I remember during that time that a lot of our patients were concerned about the COVID pandemic and how would, it would relate to their own condition, oftentimes having autoimmune diseases, uh, you know, needing frequent lab tests, et cetera. And most of the visits were really consumed in addressing some of those concerns. So it sounds like your survey really picked up on all of these trends. And again, that data is amazing that you were able to capture 20,000 patient visits. So I commend you for that. And yeah, it was certainly a very interesting abstract that you guys presented. So it will certainly yeah, thank be you. part of our, yeah, definitely be part of data that we are going to look at in this study too. Absolutely. And one of the things we found, you mentioned that sometimes your patients have to travel a long way to get to their appointment for two or four hours. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we thought we would expect to see is that people in rural communities would make a greater use of telehealth because, you know, practices are more mm -hmm. spread out. It requires traveling farther to get to an appointment. But our study showed that actually people in, in urban centers had greater concerns about COVID-19, I guess, because of population density in cities. So those were the folks who were actually more likely to make the switch uh, to telehealth at that time. So it seems like in yeah. some cases, urban centers adapted quickly like yours did to, to maintain access to care. That's fascinating that you actually were able to see that. Now, you know, fast forwarding seven to nine months later, we're, we know that concerns for the pandemic were certainly much more heightened in urban centers. So it makes sense retrospectively, but you were able to see that in real time. And that's kind of fascinating that you were able to find that particular observation to be valid. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Definitely. So, so yeah, I guess even before, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, people 
living with autoimmune rheumatic diseases were at high risk for an infectious disease or might have other physical or, or mental health reasons that might make it hard for them to come into the the office for an in-person appointment uh, regularly. Mm-hmm. So I guess thinking even beyond, you know, the sort of urgency of, of this year and the, the adaptations that, that a lot of folks had to make this year, what do you think makes telehealth particularly important for rheumatologists and their patients, even beyond this this current era of social distancing? Yeah, Thanks for that question. I think um, we all know in rheumatology that there is a significant workforce shortage of rheumatologists and rheumatology-trained mid-level practitioners to service the growing needs of our patients. And as urban centers expand, driving distances increase, as people move into different rural parts of the country, those are all trends that we're seeing now. I think telehealth really allows rheumatology to be practiced. And I suspect it will improve our overall effectiveness in dealing with our huge backlog of patients that need to be serviced by rheumatologists. So I think it offers another convenient way for our patients to have have access to rheumatologists. In some cases, I can see it improve access to tertiary medical care centers, for example, now that telehealth is getting established as a viable option, and hopefully the payers might follow suit and continue paying for some of these telehealth visits, it would be interesting to see how tertiary care centers adapt to this. And, and it, for example, it might be really interesting to get opinions on rare diseases like myositis, et cetera, from experts who see a lot of these cases and they can opine using telehealth. And I think that'll be an advance in our field. It's interesting actually, even before the pandemic hit, Rohit Agarwal at at the University of Pittsburgh and I collaborated on an NIH funded study. It was funded as an R01. And the whole question was, can we actually provide adequate care for patients with myositis using a telehealth platform? And also, can we recruit patients into clinical trials? And and the premise of the study was that the average patient travels about three to four hours, even more sometimes, to uh, get tertiary level care for rare diseases like myositis. So I think this whole movement towards telehealth will certainly add to the access issues that our patients face, but it will probably help and hopefully help get access to tertiary level care as well. And with patient convenience factors, I think it'll be well accepted for patients who might have difficulty making it into a rheumatologist's office or other specialist office even on a regular basis without, you know, the travel time is cut out. So I think overall, I think this is a move in the right direction as long as we're able to troubleshoot and figure out what are the kinks in the system and how do we approach telehealth in a systematic manner so that we don't miss some of the important things that we have uh, learned are, are critical in the care of our 
patients who have chronic autoimmune diseases. So Ben, I wanted to ask you actually, um, you know, you work with the Creaky Joints community and the Arthritis Power Research Registry and the app. And so you're seeing a lot of patient feedback and you're seeing it in real time and you have a very vibrant community that's engaged about all of these issues. What do you think uh, they're talking about? And could you share that with us? And what do you think are the opportunities to improve the patient experience? What would you tell us rheumatologists that we're doing good and what can we do better? You mentioned that, you know, the importance of telehealth in rheumatology is, is to respond to the sort of workforce shortages in in getting, you know, the the number of rheumatologists trained to respond to the demand in patients. And I and I think, you know, as you know, we we witnessed sudden and unplanned shift to telehealth this year. And, and through the eyes of the patient, I think what we were a little bit surprised about and even alarmed at creaky joints is how inadequately prepared people were, which is natural, right? I mean, it's a new thing. So, But one of the things we learned that was that patients weren't always taking full advantage of the benefits of telehealth, that, you know, that it is, it, it, there's some opportunities there. And I think, which is why a project like, like this one is so important to help provide some guidance. And because I think there's, you know, there's some opportunities to enhance doctor patient communication. And also, I think one of the barriers we found was that patients were hindered by some pretty basic or avoidable technical glitches. So to the extent that we're able to, to help smooth those over or help people experience something that's predictable, there's, you know, a protocol or something that that they can expect will happen during a telehealth visit, I think that will mm-hmm. will help a lot for sure. So I think that's, those are kind of the the broad areas that we found. I mean, I think people of course really are excited about the opportunity to interact with their, with their doctors, but I think we just have some work to do in terms of viewing telehealth as a, as a true professional encounter because patients may feel or get the sense that it's more akin to like a personal or social visit since they're more used to using those kinds Mm -hmm. of platforms like FaceTime for those kinds of encounters with family or friends. So, so I think we just have to think about, you know, how, how can we make it a, a, a true optimal experience for both the patient and the doctor? Yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So another question, I guess, when we're thinking about this amazing project that I think, you know, it's so needed at this time. And I, I know as part of the Thrive study and project, a peer-reviewed article describing telehealth and rheumatology best practices will be published and that we'll be working, Creek Joints, uh, working with you and others, other experts to produce a patient-facing training video to show rheumatoid arthritis patients how to perform a joint self-assessment and then compare its accuracy with the gold standard, which of course is an in-person clinician joint exam, yeah. uh, the 28-joint count and so on. So I'm wondering though, yes. you know, in the meantime, until we have those resources developed as the study progresses, are there things that you recommend that rheumatologists can do now in the short term, in the near term, to increase their patient's comfort with telehealth and have productive appointments? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So I think some of the things that we as rheumatologists can do is to explain to patients that this is a viable option, that we are honing our skills, we have gotten better than we were at the beginning and that we are able to achieve a lot through telehealth. I think raising the confidence levels of patients through communication directly with them is important. 
I think talking to staff members and explaining to them from a patient perspective, what are the expectations and setting the expectations of what can be achieved in the telehealth encounter. While we're waiting for more systematic data on this particular topic, we can make some common sense decisions about which patients are appropriate for telehealth versus which patients are not appropriate for telehealth. I think the ACR has put out a position statement on telehealth best practices so far. It's not very comprehensive yet. It's not systematic and peer-reviewed as we're planning to do in this grant, but I think it's a good starting point. I think other groups such as yours have also put out some position statements on this. Again, we're looking for what's out there right now, and even though it's not systematic, it's usable, and I think it does enhance the overall effect of telehealth-delivered care in the interim until we have more robust guidance to afford our patients. So I think talking to patients, talking to staff, talking to your peers, seeing what everyone else is doing, comparing notes, using good audio and video equipment and good lighting equipment, educating patients. And um, I think what has been critical in my practice has been having a knowledgeable staff member, like a medical assistant, room the patients beforehand and kind of lay out the expectations and what to expect from the visit, how it might go and answer all of the patients' questions and help them troubleshoot any of the technological issues that they might be having. I would say those are quick tips that I would like to share with the listeners. That's great. That's that's super helpful. I know even at Creaky Joints, some of the similar issues we're trying to respond to patients' need for information and guidance quickly, even without kind of full information. And so we stood up a website called eroom.org that is, is intended for patients to help them get the most out of their telehealth visits that helps kind of walk them through preparing on the technical end and so forth to get yeah, the most out like, of it. Yeah, I like so I think, that document a lot. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I just, what I'm excited about is our, our project together is going to help improve some of the resources and knowledge that we already have and hopefully build on that so there's a more standardized experience for everyone. Yeah. So with that, yeah, I would like to thank you, Dr. Swami Venturapali. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you here in this format and also to get to work with you on this project and, and really appreciate your time today. Yeah, same here. I would like to thank you as well for everything that you do and for your expertise and help with this project. And a huge shout out actually to Dr. Norm Galis, who's uh, funded this community practitioner innovation grant that's administered and funded through the Rheumatology Research Foundation. I think this is really exciting for members of the rheumatology community, particularly in practice. We see a lot of patients. We make a lot of clinical observations and to be able to participate in high-level research with groups such as yourself, Jeff Curtis and his group, Neil Suarez and his group. That's uh, quite amazing and I'm excited to be able to do this. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you.